Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. As we continue in our series, the book of Exodus, free at last. Listen to the word of the Lord from Exodus 21, verses 12 through 17. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now that as we look at these verses that you would do that work in us and among us through the power of your spirit and by your word, that you would conform us in our speech and our thinking and our actions into the image of your son and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'll confess, uh, when I uh, chose to preach through the book of Exodus, I knew I was going to get to these laws, and I wasn't quite sure really what to do with them. Um, but then I read something in the Confession of Faith that was helpful and encouraging. The Confession of Faith says, uh, in regards to these civil and judicial laws of the people of God, the church of God, under the old covenant. The confession says to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry, that means various judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. As we look at these laws, the point isn't that they are bound, binding on us as a church under the new covenant to practice in their specific details. Rather, what I want us to see is what the confession speaks of as that general equity which these laws point us to, that general equity which is binding on us all. I want us to see the love and justice for our neighbors that these laws pointed to and that was fulfilled in Christ and his church. I want us to see the harmony in the call for the church in the past and our call today under Christ to love our brothers and sisters within the household of faith and those outside of it in terms of how we treat them. The call is to be in our interactions with one another and with our neighbors what God in covenant with Israel was calling them to be when he spoke this promise to them. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This promise now belongs to the church under Christ who says to us uh, through John in Revelation 1, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, priest, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That God takes this calling that he has placed on us seriously and that we should as well was in fact the basis for the severity of the punishment we see in these verses for those who violated these particular laws, these particular rules. While all sin leads to death, God knows as we should that there are sins which impact uh, on a community and a society in a way that are far more destructive than others. Note that I said the impact of the sin and not the nature of it, for all sin is rebellion and therefore leads to death. But there are some sins that tear at the fabric of a community and a society in ways that eventually can lead to that community or that, that society's destruction. We are pointed to uh, three of those sinful patterns of behavior here in this text. And wouldn't you know that they are in keeping with three of the laws that we find in the second half of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. Are all covered in these rules. And adultery, which does not make this list, will also be held forward as a sin so serious as to warrant capital punishment. The point of the sermon this morning isn't to talk about modern-day capital punishment per se, but to impress upon us what God was trying to impress upon his people, to take seriously the call to protect our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors from these destructive sins. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't relax these laws but gives them their full meaning, calling us as his church to deeper obedience, which is possible only through faith in him and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is in each of us. The forgiveness and grace ministered to us by Christ through His Spirit is meant to do, to help us do exactly what Titus tells us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. So what then is that no to ungodliness that these laws teach us to embody? Well, the first no is no to murder. No to murder. This uh, rule this, uh, in uh, verse, verse 12, let me read it again. Whoever strikes a man so that he shall die, so that he dies shall be put to death. And then verse 13, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. This rule addresses two types of murder, premeditated and accidental. The person planned to take his neighbor's life, he is to be put to death. If he kills uh, his neighbor by accident, then he is to be granted the ability to flee to a place of refuge until such a time as there could be a trial to determine what should be done regarding the case. In the one, the person intentionally takes into their own hands what belongs only to God, the life of another. In the other, the person's actions could range from a true accident in which there is no fault 
to severe negligence. The judges would need to decide based on the circumstances where to place the act and what punishment to apply. The phrase, that phrase in verse 13, where it says, but God let him fall into his, uh, into his hands, was a way of saying that death, though tragic, was not outside of God's providence. What was God then teaching his people? And what would Israel be teaching each other and the nations around them by applying these rules to their corporate life together? They would be teaching the value of human life. They would be teaching that all of life belonged first and foremost to the Lord. And that whether accidental or premeditated, murder was to be taken seriously and where applicable, people were to be held accountable. This principle didn't begin here, but began in Genesis when the Lord said to Noah, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from… I just had a Bugs Bunny moment. (laughs) A reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The point here isn't that people get to take revenge, but rather to establish the idea that life belongs to the Lord, and that those who take it are accountable to him for it. And that this accountability remains under the new covenant is demonstrated through the words of our Lord Jesus who says to us, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. While committed Christians can debate whether that accountability still includes the death penalty, the principle of accountability remains. As the spirit-empowered community of Jesus, we are to make every effort to guard our own hearts against murder and that which tends toward it, and to work in the places where God has set us for the same purpose. Christians should be those who model and promote the kind of care that curbs the potential for murder through negligence, encouraging individuals and institutions to make safety a priority. And Christians should certainly be those who discourage any and every form of intentional murder where the true purpose is not to defend life whether from individuals acting in their own capacity or acting as agents of the state. We are called as Christians to be those who value human life in the way we speak, in the way we act, and in what we promote among each other and what we promote among our neighbors and in the world around us. If murder as Jesus implies, is rooted in part in anger toward others, then dealing with the presence of that anger in our own hearts is part of how we prevent violence and murder in our midst. In the first place, we need to be honest about the presence of anger in our own hearts 
not lying to ourselves about its existence. Secondly, we need to repent of its presence in our hearts. And repentance is more than just a verbal activity. It is a commitment to take the necessary steps to deal with what is going on on the inside of me, looking to counselors and others to help me explore and commit to healthy patterns that move me away from anger. And when we fail, we need people around us who will admonish us and support us in repentance and repair of whatever harm our anger has caused. But since all murder doesn't flow from anger, we need the additional commitment to guard against negligence. And this is rooted in a commitment to dealing with our self-centeredness, the self-centeredness that causes me to think only about what I want, not about the safety of others. Later in this very text, God is going to give commands that imply responsibility for owners of animals to take care that their animals do not harm others. And if they do, that they will bear the responsibility for that. Such a command speaks to a concern for the safety of others and for all of us doing what we can to ensure the safety of others, even if it costs us something to do so. Amen, people of God. We are, as Christians, to be a people in how we live and act toward one another and how we act among our neighbors and what we promote among our neighbors, we are to be a people who say no to murder. We are also to be a people who say no to slavery. In addition to murder, God addresses in these rules a particular kind of violation of the Eighth Commandment, a particular kind of stealing. That is, the stealing of human beings with the implied intent to sell them into slavery. That God considered this kind of slavery a capital offense tells us all we need to know about how seriously God regarded this crime. Debt slavery, as I talked about last week, though tragic due to the severe poverty which caused someone to consider it as an option, was the result of someone selling themselves to pay off a debt. The slave not only had choice in the matter, but was to be released, as I said last week, after six years of serving, no matter how large the debt was. Even captives taken in war, though tragic, would have been expect, an expected consequence of conflict. Neither of these was God's desired outcome, since the world He created would have resulted in just and fruitful and loving relationships with God and with neighbor. It is our sin that has created the context for the evil of slavery of any kind to flourish in this world. Yet debt slavery and slavery due to conflicts was God was prepared to engage for the good of those caught in the grip of these circumstances. But the stealing of human beings for profit, God was not prepared to tolerate from his people. Anyone caught stealing another human being or anyone caught in the possession of a stolen human being would be guilty of a capital offense forcibly removing someone from their homeland, from their people to make a profit off them would incur God's judgment. So we don't have to ask if God was okay with the American slave trade 
or any other slave trade rooted in the forcible removal of a people from one place to another and the forcible servitude of that people for the sake of making money. God himself gives us the answer. We don't have to ask if the forcible removal of women from their families and their homes or the forced servitude of women in the sex trade for the sake of making money is wrong. God himself gives us the answer. We don't have to ask if making war with people for the explicit purpose of capturing their people to sell them into slavery is wrong. God himself gives us the answer. The theft of human beings in every circumstance is wrong. And the theft of human beings for the purpose of making profit is wrong. And the raising of this crime to the level of a capital offense was to teach his people to regard it with the same abhorrence with which God himself regarded it. In teaching his people to regard it as such, God was addressing the underlying sin issue that not only his old covenant church would struggle with, but that we struggle with too. And that underlying sin issue, as I noted last week, is greed. It's greed that causes us to turn other human beings into slaves. And it's greed that causes us to turn a deaf ear to the cries of the enslaved throughout the world. Jesus himself warns us about this greed in Luke 12, where we read, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus has freed you from greed. He has freed you from this sin of, 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 of wanting more and more and more to the point where you make others serve you for that purpose. Jesus has freed us from greed through his sacrifice on our behalf so that we might not be participants in anything that creates slavery for others. I've already said it, but let me press this upon us again. Greed is often a precursor to the slavery of others. When we are greedy, we press others to serve that greed or we turn a blind eye to how our greed might be forcing others to labor in ways that God did not intend. The extreme forms of this can be seen throughout our world in the various forms of slavery that still exist to this day. I saw a tweet the other day from Dr. Anthony Bradley referencing that some 50 million people across the world are suffering from some form of real slavery. I want you to let that sink in for a second. But there are less extreme forms of greed that lead to real suffering for others. Certainly greed factors into the issues of poverty and hunger and debt and homelessness and other forms of deprivation that we see all around us. And this forces us to ask ourselves how we are participating in exacerbating those things or how we are participating in alleviating them. We're reminded over and over again to be generous, to lend without expecting to be repaid, to cancel the debts of others, and so on and so on. There's also a call here to use our voices, our connections, our resources, where we have the opportunity to see others freed, from around, freed around the world from those forms of severe slavery that still exist today. 
No, you as an individual or we as an individual church can't free everyone, but we can work where God gives us opportunity. Amen, people of God. So God calls us as his people to be a people who say no to murder, who say no to slavery. Lastly, to say no to harming those whom he has given us to care for us. In addition to addressing specific violations of the Sixth and Eighth Commandments, the Lord addresses specific violations of the Fifth Commandment. The one has to do with physical violence toward a parent in which a child assaults his or her parent. parent. And the strike here isn't just a shove or a punch thrown in anger, but more likely an attempt to severely wound one's parent to do great harm to them physically. Honoring one's parent would of course mean not striking out at them physically at all, but capital punishment would be reserved for those who physically assault their parents seeking to do them great harm. Such an act was not to be tolerated among God's people. Parents being given a special place of honor related to their role as caregivers were to be respected and protected from unwarranted physical violence. And one could assume that this command would apply broadly to one's elders in terms of age and responsibility and to leaders among God's people. I said unwarranted physical violence a minute ago because the judges in Israel in applying this rule would most certainly take into consideration if a son or daughter was protecting themselves from abusive physical violence. Not corrected discipline, mind you, but violence. On the other side of protecting parents against physical violence would be protecting them from being cursed by their children. The act of cursing here is more than just a word spoken in a moment of anger or disappointment over not getting one's way. In other words, this isn't a child throwing a temper tantrum. Rather, this is more akin to someone who curses the day that their parents were ever born, one who intends to disassociate themselves from their parents, not only through their words, but through their actions as well. This is the person who curses with their mouth and follows that curse up by separating themselves from any responsibility or duty of love to their parent. This is a, a way of saying I hate you with the intent to follow up with actual actions of hatred. This is a severe form of cursing and was not to be tolerated among God's people. Again, the judges would determine, have to determine each case for other factors like similar and unwarranted hatred being shown toward the child. The point of this law, though, is that Israel was to take seriously violations of the fifth commandment, that they were to take seriously how children treated their parents. What does Jesus have to say to us in this? He says this, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what would be gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or his mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. Jesus shows us here the connection between saying and doing as it relates to dishonor that even in his day, children found ways to separate themselves from doing what was right in both their speech and their actions toward their parents. But the salvation that Jesus brings empowers us to keep this commandment. 
and empowers us through the Spirit to show the kind of honor to our parents and elders and leaders that God calls us to. It empowers us not to repay evil for evil or curse for curse or blow for blow. Rather, it empowers us to bless those who care for us, to do good to them at every stage of their life. A healthy community is one where this kind of honor is upheld. And the church should be that kind of community that encourages this kind of honor and respect to be demonstrated toward our parents and toward all those whom God has given us to care for us. So the question for us this morning is how do we do that? Beyond just applying punishment for the violation of the fifth commandment, the Old Testament law called on members and leaders in the church to engage in helping households deal with sin in the household. Family dynamics can be complex, and relationships between parents and children can sometimes be painful and dysfunctional. Can I get an amen? As Christians, we are called to engage that complexity, that dysfunction, that pain with the love of God in Christ. We're called to walk alongside of each other where we can to help each other confront sin and build healthy relationships within families, calling for respect and honor to be valued and protected among members of the family. No, we can't resolve all conflicts within our family, but we can prayerfully enter in where God gives us opportunity to try to make the love of Christ known. So I would encourage us as a congregation to support each other, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to enter in where we can in helping each other to walk in that respect and that honor that God calls us to. Amen, people of God. Toward our parents and toward all those God has given to us to care for us and to lead us, as we do so, we will be strengthened individually and we will be strengthened corporately in our relationships as God's people to his glory and to his praise. Amen. These laws and rules in the Mosaic Covenant were rooted in God's call in Exodus 19 for Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Striving to keep these laws would demonstrate to the nations around them the love and justice of God's kingdom. This love and justice is now embodied in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who took on the punishment for our violation of all of these laws. As Colossians says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In him, we are now empowered by the Spirit to a deeper obedience to the principles that undergirded these laws, being called as a community away from murder and the things that tend toward it, away from slavery and the things that tend toward it, away from harming those God has given us to care for us and the things that tend toward it. As we pursue these things, we will be a light to the nations, a city 
set on a hill that cannot be hidden, that everyone may see that our God is God and that his kingdom rules over all. Amen, people of God. God, help us be this kind of people for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that in all of our living, in all of our thinking, in all of our speaking, that we would be a people, Lord, who uphold life, that we would be a people who show by the way we speak and by the way we think and by the way that we act, Lord, that we are a people who value who value life. I pray that we were promoted in our relationships among one another and that we would promote in this world what tends toward life. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people who say no to murder and everything that tends toward it. I pray that we would be a people who say no to slavery and everything that tends toward it. I pray that we would be a people who say no to harming those you have given us to care for us and everything that tends toward it. Make us a people, Lord, in all of our thinking and all of our speaking and all of our doing. Make us be a people who reflect that call that you have placed on us to be a kingdom of priests and to be a holy nation that those around us may see and know that Jesus is Savior and Lord and that your kingdom rules over all. This we pray and ask, not just for ourselves, but for your people all around the world. In Jesus' mighty name.